Craig are going to be teaching in the lounge there. The uh, discussion group usually meets in there, but we're anticipating a good group there. So the discussion group is going to be in room two, this corner room over here. So if you're interested in discussing the topic today, we invite you to come to that class also. Well, actually, actually you got to choose between one or the other. Any rate, what a beautiful uh, mid-October day. Cool, crisp, sunny, colorful. My thermometer this morning read 37. Uh, I don't know whether yours got down that low or not. If the Kelvins are here, they would probably say it was down to freezing. I don't know. But anyway, hopefully you'll get up to about 60 today and you go out for a walk with a sweater on and, or a ride and go see the beautiful color. Those of you who were raised in the church, I don't presume everybody was, but those of you who were raised, especially in a Bible-centered church, even if you're less than half my age, you probably have heard over a dozen, maybe dozens of sermons and lessons, Sunday school lessons, on the feeding of the 5,000. And so I have to wonder for you if there's anything I can say about this story that you haven't already heard. It's such a familiar story. It's one of the few that are, is mentioned in all four Gospels in the New Testament. So the only thing I could hope is maybe you didn't pay attention all that well, so that if I do say something this morning, it may sound new and and significant to you. <clears throat> but regardless of your background, whether the story is familiar to you or not, there are three things that caught my attention as I restudied this uh, story, this passage for today's sermon, and I'd like to share them with you. Um, so open your Bible to chapter 9 of Luke, or grab the Pew Bible in the back of the chair in front of you, and I think, if I noted it correctly, it's page 733 that you'll find Luke chapter 9 on. The first thing that caught my attention, number one, was Jesus showed compassionate patience with the crowd. Jesus showed compassionate patience. Now, in order to see this, we need to understand the situation of this event. We need to understand the time, the place, and the circumstances involved. Regarding the time, notice that in verse 10, the 12 apostles have returned from a mission that Jesus sent them on, and uh, this mission was to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to heal the sick in the towns throughout uh, the Galilean area. And uh, our pastor, of course, gave us a, a very insightful and challenging message on that yet, uh, last Sunday. But now, this Sunday, we find that the apostles are back at Jesus and we're giving him a report of what happened and what all that they had done on this mission trip. And um, furthermore, what has been happening to Jesus and the disciples recently at this time had caught the ear of King Herod. And Herod wanted to uh, see Jesus also. So that's the situation. So Jesus decides to take the disciples to, uh, away from the crowds that have been following him. 
to an area somewhere around Bethsaida um, to what Matthew and Mark call a lonely place. And what John's gospel says was uh, on a mountain where there was much grass. Now, my crudely drawn uh, map here of the Galilean area, uh, Bethsaida is just northeast of the Sea of Galilee. And um, it, as best I can determine, it, it wasn't in the town of Bethsaida, but it must have been out to the east of Bethsaida, hill country on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. So I put an X there underneath Bethsaida, probably somewhere around there is where this took place. And I imagine it was a very beautiful place up on the hills overlooking Lake Galilee and over to the hilly country of Galilee, quaint little villages speckled here and there with hills. Must have been a very beautiful spot. And this would have been a nice place for Jesus to get away from the crowd and to give his disciples rest and refreshment. After, after all, they'd been on this uh, mission trip for many days probably, and it was a, it was a good hard-working uh, effort that they put in, and so it was time for a break. It didn't hurt to be out of the limelight and away from Herod either. But now look what happens. In verse 11, it says, but the crowds learned about it and followed him. And John adds that the crowds came after him because he, they saw the signs that he did in healing the sick. So now what is Jesus going to do? He wants time away from the crowd, a time when his disciples can go on kind of like a retreat and, and get some rest and when he can do some special teaching of them that's appropriate to his disciples. But the crowds come and encroach upon him and interrupt his would-be retreat. What should he do? Now, if I was in that situation, I would say something like, look, folks, I've been with you for many days off and on, and I really need to get away with my disciples. So why don't I dismiss you with a benediction and send you home to your places, and we'll, we'll catch up with you a little bit later. So... Toodaloo, bye-bye. Uh, and, you know, I think that Jesus could have said something, well, not those exact words, but I think he could have said that kind of thing and have been perfectly right. His disciples, he and his disciples, surely needed a break. But notice what he did. The latter part of verse 11. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Mark says that he felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And apparently he went on ministering to, to them for the rest of a long afternoon because we learn that at around dinner time, as it was approaching, the disciples broke in and asked Jesus to send the crowd away to where they could get something to eat. And even then, Jesus didn't give up on the crowd. He stuck with them, as we will see. Compassionate patience. I'm just amazed as I encounter this incident. And there are plenty of examples of that in other reports, other times in the stories of Jesus, where this, where this quality is exemplified by him. Compassionate 
patience. Now I'm sure that there have been times when you have had compassion for certain people in certain situations. And I'm sure there are times when you have done pretty well at exercising patience in a difficult situation. Other times not so, if you're like me. But how often have we been in a situation, something like what Jesus is in here, and we've exercised both compassion and patience? As you know, my wife um, is a, a self-employed lawyer. When she retired from the Red Cross a few years ago, she decided to continue a private practice working at home alone. Home alone. Uh, I call her job a 7 to 11 business. That is, she starts the work about, well, after an early breakfast in the morning and sometimes doesn't quit to close 11 o'clock at night. Now, of course, she's able to fit household chores in there and some gardening work, and she does spend lunch and supper with her husband, usually, and she has a little leisure time to play the banjo and other things like that. But uh, it seems, I guess, like a lot of you women, her day is just one long web of activity from dawn to close to midnight. And she likes that kind of lifestyle. Some people wouldn't like this, you know, kind of weaving work time in with other time activity, but that's the way it is at our house. And for the most part, I think she likes that kind of life. But there are times when <clears throat> I'll hear her say, and it must be late in the afternoon, you know, I've had nothing but a string of phone calls all day long and I need to get some work done. If the phone rings one more time, I'm going to scream. And then, of course, the phone rings one more time. And uh, sometimes near the supper hour, when she's trying to get supper ready, or even sitting down to eat supper. <clears throat> so she answers it. Hello? Oh, Mrs. Smith, how are you? Yes. Is this a good time to talk? Yes, yeah, sure. <laughs> what can I do for you? The challenge of compassionate patience. The challenge for us at times, I think, is to exercise wisdom, to know, to know when to say no, <laughs> or to know how to decide between dealing with the immediate and dealing with the important. But in each case, to do it with compassion and patience, I, I think that only comes with a maturing love. And Jesus is our wonderful example of that. The second thing that caught my attention in this story was Jesus meets the crowd's need with the help of the disciples. The crowd did have a need, and he met it, but he met it with by means of his disciples. Let's look at the steps he took in this process. First, the crowd had a need. The crowd's need, of course, was food. This large mass of people had been following and listening to Jesus most of the day, and many of them, maybe most of them, hadn't had any lunch. So the disciples had a plan. Verse 12, late in the afternoon, the disciples came to Jesus and said, send the crowd away so that they can go to the surrounding villages and countrysides and find food and lodging, because we are in a remote place. 
And notice Jesus' reply. In verse 13, Jesus says, you give them something to eat. See, the disciples had an easy solution to the problem. Send them off to get food for themselves. But Jesus gives them a challenge. You feed them. Now, what would you do if you were one of Jesus' disciples in that situation? I mean, here a, a huge mass of people been with you all day, and they're hungry, and there's no food. And Jesus says to you, you feed them. I'd say, all right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, the disciples' reaction, I think, in one word was impossible. All four Gospels report that the disciples only had five loaves and two fish. And even that they had gotten from a young fellow who had volunteered what he had. And there were about 5,000 people present, all four Gospels tell us. Matthew says there were women and children in addition. John adds the words of Philip that even 200 denarii would not be enough to feed the crowd. Now, a denarius in that day, as many of you know, was about a day's wage. And uh, so today, if the average worker were to work 200 days, they might earn somewhere around twenty to forty thousand dollars. Now, it's not—it's not certain as to whether the disciples had that much equivalent money back then. But even if they did, even if they were carrying that much money with them, Philip says even that is not enough to feed them. So the problem then is there's not enough food, and there's not enough money to buy the food. And as a matter of fact, there's not enough time to go to town to buy the food to feed the crowd. So the disciples' suggestion of send them away was perfectly reasonable. And it seemed that Jesus says, you feed them, is perfectly unreasonable. But Jesus had a solution. The only solution that seemed that possible, given the circumstances. And that was a miraculous feeding. Now, some scholars see this story as an allegory or pure fiction, but most scholars, because of the evidence of all four Gospels, think that there's at least something historical about it. So there are two explanations of this event. One is a natural explanation, the other is a supernatural explanation. The natural explanation is that there were some people in the crowd that had some food, but they were reluctant to share it until Jesus set an example of sharing by what he did with the loaves and the fish. And then everybody became willing to share, and that's how they were fed. Now, the problem with that view is that while, while it's possible that some people back in the crowd the disciples didn't get to might have had some food, nevertheless, the disciples suggest that most people were unprepared for a meal, yet all four Gospels tell us that not only was the crowd filled, but there were 12 baskets full of leftovers. Where did all that food come from? And John records that the people recognized what Jesus had done as a miraculous sign. So much so that they tried to make him king right there on the spot, according to John. It definitely was a miraculous feeding. However, note that Jesus used the service of his disciples in the process. He used what they offered him and made it enough for over 5,000 people. Notice his method if you read verses 14 to 17. But he said to his disciples, 
Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so, and everyone sat down. And taking the five loaves and two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The question is sometimes raised whether the food grew in amount in the hands of Jesus or in the hands or the baskets of the disciples. Daryl Bach, in his commentary on Luke, points out that the imperfect form of the verb to give suggests that Jesus kept on giving. The, the translation would be he was giving them a, a, a continual action, that he kept giving to the disciples again and again as they distributed to the many groups of 50 until all had enough. So the multiplication process apparently happened in the hands of Jesus, at least, if not in the baskets of the disciples. Howard Marshall suggests that the lesson from this event for us is that Jesus can take the offerings of ordinary people and use them richly in his service. And so from that, I got the uh, idea for a key biblical truth, and that is Jesus says if we offer up to him our abilities and our resources, he will do amazing things with them through us for his kingdom. Barbara put me on to a good example of this with the mother of one of her clients. The client's mother recently died, but her, her life story is quite remarkable. Her name was Alordis Archer, and she was raised in Haiti, one of the poorest countries in the world. As an adult, Alordis and her family moved to the United States, but she had a deep concern for the poor people, especially the poor children in Haiti. So she began saving a portion of each paycheck from her work as a nurse's aide to finance what became two special ministries that she eventually started as she periodically traveled back to Haiti. The first one was a feeding program. And then over the years, she was able to finance, organize, and establish a Christian elementary school for the poor children so that they could be properly fed, well-educated, and learn about Jesus. Now, what we have to bear in mind is that while her earnings as a nurse's aide were quite modest, what she did have to give in American dollars became quite significant in the Haitian economy. It went far. And today, after 30 years, the school is still thriving in Haiti, and her three daughters carry on the support along with other Christian friends. So Alordis offered to Christ her organizational abilities, he certainly had that, and her savings, and he multiplied it marvelously, wonderfully, through her efforts as a part of his kingdom's work. So, how does the key biblical truth then apply to you today? Maybe Jesus is asking you to do something, and you say, but I only have a few loaves. 
Uh, I only have this feeble, underdeveloped talent, if you can call it a talent, this feeble ability was given me. And Jesus says, offer that up to me, and I will do wonderful things with it through you for the work of my kingdom. It may not make you famous. I won't necessarily make you a rock star. Uh, you might not even be in the limelight. It may be something that you do behind the scenes, and maybe very few people will know about it. But in the long run, maybe only in the heavenly long run, you will come to see that what you offered me, I multiplied and used it mightily for my kingdom. It seems to me that that's the lesson, at least one of the lessons that we learned from the story of the feeding of the 5,000. And then third and final, the, the third and final thing that caught my attention in this story was Jesus made this miracle decisive for real, revealing his true identity. At least in Luke's account, it seems to be the case because the very next event that happens in chapter here in chapter 9 is where Jesus confronts his disciples with the question of who he is. Verse 18, the very next verse from this passage, begins. Jesus begins by saying, Who do the crowd say that I am? And in the following verses, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets of long ago that has come back to life. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Now, all along in the early chapters of Luke, Jesus has been doing things that amaze people and have led to the question, who is this man? He's cast out evil spirits. He, he's healed the sick and the lepers. In, uh, he, he's claimed to be the Lord of the Sabbath. And in chapter 8, just before this chapter, especially, we've seen extraordinary things. Jesus calms the raging storm by his own powerful words. He heals a man possessed of a multitude of demons, and he even raises Jairus' daughter from the dead. And, <clears throat> and now in chapter 9, he demonstrates, perhaps to the largest crowd he ever uh, uh, preached to, that he has the power to feed them all with just a small amount of food. Now, we don't know whether all these events are in chronological order or not, but it seems that Luke's purpose here is to give account of these events as a way of leading to the question, who is Jesus? What is his true identity? And the evidence seems strongly to support the answer, Jesus is God's Messiah, as Peter said. But then, from chapter 9 on, Jesus begins to clarify what kind of Messiah he is. Not the one who will conquer Rome by military might, but the one who will give his life as an atonement for the sins of the world. As John records, the very next day, Jesus says to the crowd that he as the heavenly bread will give himself for the life of the world. He had to clarify what kind of Messiah he was because they wanted to make him king and solve all their economic problems. <laughs> he had not come to conquer and defeat the Roman Empire. He had come to conquer and defeat the greatest evil that keeps this world from being 
from having the peace and the righteousness that God's kingdom is meant to have. And that greatest evil is sin. And so all these miracles that Jesus was doing were not to display him as a magician or some wonder worker, but to identify him as the true Messiah who will save us from sin and its consequences, including sickness and demonic influences and death. Now, you can reject this story of the feeding of the 5,000 as <clears throat> fiction. In fact, you can reject all the miracle stories of Jesus as fiction if you want to. But the only problem is that you won't have any coherent picture of Jesus to put in its place. Because as Bible scholars, both liberal and conservative, admit, the picture of Jesus in the Gospels is supernatural through and through. If you take out all the supernatural, you don't have anything left. And so Jesus of Nazareth becomes the most problematic person in history for historians to explain on a purely naturalistic basis. But if you're willing to accept the main message of the New Testament, that the God of this universe loved us so much that he came to us as one of us in the person of Jesus, in order to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. <laughs> if you're willing to accept that primary message of the New Testament, then all these miracle stories that we've looked at for the last several Sundays will make perfect sense. So the question once again is, who do you say Jesus is? And if you're not sure of the answer to that question, I'd love to speak further with you after the service. Shall we pray? Lord Christ, we pray that you would give us the faith to believe that if we offer up what we have been given in life in terms of our abilities, feeble as they are, in terms of our resources, as meager as they might be, that you would multiply them and use them richly for your kingdom and ultimately for our good through your kingdom. We thank you for this truth. Give us the faith to believe it and to act upon it. In Christ's name, amen.